You're listening to the Euro 92 Throwback Series on the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to SFF Podcast with me, John Bleasdale. 30 years ago this summer, Scotland took part in the first ever European Championships at the 1992 Finals in Sweden. To commemorate this, we take a look back at the Euro 92 Finals with a representative from each of the eight teams who took part in the tournament. In part three, it's time to review the home nation's fortunes from Euro 92. First up, England striker Alan Smith goes into detail as to why England performs poorly in the tournament and how he truly felt at the reaction to that substitution where he was brought on for Gary Lineker against Sweden. Then Herald and Daily Mail sports writer Hugh MacDonald gives an insight into the Scots' first ever qualification for European Championship finals and how they performed admirably in the ultimate group of death with the world champions, European champions and the Euro 88 runners-up. So sit back and enjoy our look at the home nations at Euro 92. In this part of our Euro 92 throwback, we review the fortunes of England and I'm delighted to be joined by 13 times Caps England International and current Sky Sports pundit, Alan Smith. Alan, welcome along. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, John. Yeah, very well. Yeah, thanks very much for um, coming on. And um, obviously, um, we're talking about Euro 92 because this year's the 30th um, anniversary. Um, it's a bit of a um, tournament that isn't really great from England point of view is the way things um, turned out. But see, before um, we even get to that story, there was a bit of transition um, because of so Bobby Robson then um, move, moving on and Graham Taylor coming in. Um, what was the perception, you know, when that appoint with that um, appointment was made? And England obviously did well in the World Cup, of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think um, it was Bobby's uh, kind of uh, fate was decided before the World Cup, wasn't it? If uh, remember serves me, but um, yeah, I won. I won a few camps under Bobby Robson. I was kind of in and out. I never really established myself. I mean, he gave me a chance, to be fair. Um, it was at a time as well when Peter Beersley was in the squad and uh, he had a good relationship with uh, with Gary Lineker. So it wasn't wasn't easy. But, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it under him. Don Howe was the, was the coach there uh, as well. Um, I, don't, I don't think I was ever central to his thoughts, really. But, you know, I, I can't... Uh, I can't complain too much. He he, he picked me for, for quite a few squads and um, I, got, I got a few caps as well. Um, but uh, I think everybody kind of saw it coming towards an end. He, he had a lot of stick, didn't he, uh, at various times. When I made my debut in Saudi Arabia when we lost 2-1, um, was it 2-1 or 1-1? Maybe it was 1-1. Uh, and he took some fearful stick after that. I remember um, the uh, the tabloid press were baying for his blood. But uh, yeah, uh, when but when when Graham Taylor took over, I didn't think it was a you know a bad move for me because I knew that he quite liked me. I knew that he liked my type of centre forward. Um, so uh, I was quite hopeful. Yeah, you certainly were hopeful, and it helped that obviously that you had a um, arguably your best season at Arsenal as you helped them win the league in 1991, and um, you then worked your way back into squads. And by this point, um, the group's becoming a bit tight. You know, you'd beaten Poland in the opening game, but then two draws with Ireland made things a bit difficult. But a key 1 0 win in Turkey um, maybe helped start pin, um, putting things to, in, in England's favour, and then obviously. You then scored in the return fixture, um, which wasn't an easy game. I watched the highlights earlier when I was doing my research and Turkey had you under the ropes at, at times before you got the goal from um, Stuart Pierce's cross. I mean, what was your recollections of that night? Yeah, I mean, I, it was 
as close uh, to goal ahead as I think I've ever had, really. I was I was only a couple of yards out. And I remember I was fighting David Platt for the cross when Piercy swung it in. And he used to swing in a lovely ball, uh, very accurate. And uh, I attacked it and headed it down. And it's a great feeling. I mean, your mum and dad are up in the stand. Um, you're playing for England at Wembley, the home of football. And at the end of the match, your goal has been the decisive one. So it, it was a marvellous moment for me, very proud. But you're right. I mean, before, and I think especially after that second half, they took the game to us and they dominated the contest. And uh, I do remember we got booed off the pitch at the end. So, you know, we'd won one nil and we got booed off the pitch. But secretly, I'm thinking, well, I don't care. I've scored uh, the winning goal for England at Wembley and... Uh, any footballer or Englishman will tell you that he doesn't get too much better than that. So a really proud night. You go up into the players' lounge and you see your family. It, it, it was wonderful for me. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, it proved um, to be pivotal because you picked Ireland by point, um, clinched with um, a drawn Poland. You, you, you came on for uh, Andy Gray in that game to try and get you back in the game. And um, I remember watching the highlights, seeing Lineker scoring a pretty good goal to level. I mean, that must have been... Was qualification a relief over joy? Or was that a bit unfair to say? Was it still a proud moment to know that you'd qualify for the Euros? No, I think it's relief, isn't it? Because England are always expected to qualify. Uh, and and out, of, out of that group, we were expected to do it. And we made a bit heavy weather of it. Um, and I remember coming on, Bob uh, Graham Taylor nudging me in the dugout uh, just before half time to say, You're going on in the second half, Alan. Um, and I missed a chance. Uh, and recollection uh, thinking back, I thought it was a decisive one, but then I, I watched the replay and I was flagged for offside, so I was quite relieved about that. It was a really, you know, it was a <laughs> Really good chance. And then Gary got that kind of overhead kick. So, yeah, I remember celebrating at the end. But it's not like euphoria because it's one of those where, well, everyone expects us to win. Uh, you're always aware, you know, playing for England, you're always aware of the press and sharpening their pencils if, if you don't do well. So there's that added pressure. Uh, to perform and get the results. Um, so when we did clinch that qualification, a bit of a relief, I think. Yeah, I think that's um, probably fair. But and when I look at your results, I mean, um, you, England only scored eight goals in the uh, sorry seven goals in the six games, which isn't a lot. And I think Taylor was starting to come under a little bit of criticism, but it didn't help the fact that Paul Gascoigne suffered a serious knee injury in the FA Cup final. Um, no, just um, how much did um, no? In terms of the tactics that Graham deployed, I mean, what was your thoughts um, looking back? I mean, was he too pragmatic, or was it just that the quality player, for whatever reason, let us say to Gascoigne, just not there? Yeah, I mean, I think he deployed the tactics that he that he did at club level for for Aston Villa and Watford and whoever. Um, he, he was unfortunate, you know, Gaza wasn't there. I remember we played in Finland before the tournament and John Barnes did his uh, Achilles, I think it was. Um, but he he kind of, he'd ousted Peter Beardsley and Chris Waddle, some technically gifted players that had served England well. So he, Graham chose which path to go down. Um, but it's fair to say that it wasn't, probably the most gifted or exciting squad to leave these shores for major tournament, you know, because of those reasons. You know, Gaza was always the kind of the ace in the pack, wasn't he? Somebody that could produce something out of nothing. And I'm sure, I'm sure he'd have been a big part of that squad. But, um, you know, we left. I remember flying off, actually, and it was a late shout that Mark Wright, the centre-half, he wasn't fit. Uh, he'd stayed up in Liverpool and Graham Taylor wasn't all that aware of it when we, we were on the coach getting ready to go to the terminal at Heathrow and uh, it was kind of a last minute thing um, and it had that uh, slight air of chaos about it um, so uh, yeah maybe we didn't go to the tournament expecting too much because of the strength of that squad Yeah and, and, and in terms of the draw itself I mean you were given um, the host nation um, in Sweden. You were given a France side who'd won eight out of eight qualifiers and then a Yugoslavia team who had some pretty good players um, and from a lot of them from the Red Star side that won the European Cup the year before. But then Yugoslavia obviously withdrew, um, were, were thrown out 
what, two weeks before tournament and then Denmark come in. When you think about the draw, you know, was it, what was the expectation? Um, was the expectation just to to get through or was there a belief that you, um, at that point that you could get to the final? I don't know about get to the final. I mean, I say we didn't go with great expectations, but you look at the group and as you say, Denmark, late entrance. So you're not expecting too much from them, are you? Quite naturally, they couldn't manage to qualify through the normal route. Um, obviously, Sweden, the host nation, that was always going to be tough. Uh, and France, I mean, it's not, it's not an easy group, but you, you're hoping that you can squeeze through. Um, uh, and then we played Denmark in the opening game, June 0 0. It was a tough game, won a few chances. I, I went quite close actually at the near post. I think Schmeichel just tipped it around that near post. Um, but uh, Unfortunately, I got dropped for the second one against France and Alan Shearer played. Um, so, yeah, in terms of goal scoring, we never quite got going, did we? Um, you know, two nil-nils against uh, Denmark and uh, France going into that last game against Sweden. So uh, it certainly wasn't clicking at that point. No, it definitely wasn't. You say you had a hard group. Um, think of what we had. We had um, the World Champions, European Champions, and the side that reached the Euro final in '88 in, in the same group. So um, I'd have rather swapped, but then our, yeah, story isn't as, our, yeah. our story isn't as good without that, to be fair. So um, no, it was it was all good. So you mentioned the Denmark in the in the opening game. Did you underestimate Denmark? You know, in all seriousness, um, it wasn't a good game, and Denmark were the closest. Um, you're future teammate John Jensen was of course is hitting the post in that one yeah that's right yeah yeah I mean listen they had some good players obviously Peter Schmeichel in goal and, and all sorts some very experienced defenders as well I didn't really know too much about uh, JJ John Jensen at the time but he he had uh, one or two decent chances he never he, had, he never had too many of those against Ars- for Arsenal rather, uh, until he got his uh, goal but um Coming out of the game, you're thinking nil-nil. Well, it's the opening game. You don't want to lose it. Um, and we thought, well, OK, we'll build on that. Uh, whether we underestimated them, I don't know. I don't know. I suppose maybe subconsciously because they weren't automatic qualifiers. We thought they can't be all that. Um, but, it, yeah, it was a tough game. It was a tough game. We didn't get many chances. Yeah, And then, as you mentioned, you were dropped um, for... Um, Alan, a young Alan Shearer for the France game. Um, I, I was speaking to a French journalist about this one. It was an uneventful game. The only thing of note was the Stuart Pierce free kick that hits the underside of the bar and um, comes out. Other than that, there was nothing in this game at all. In terms of being dropped, you know, how hard was that for you? Or was it just one of these things that there's a 20-man squad, you've just got to go on with it? Yeah, I mean, I was disappointed, yeah, because... Um... We'd drawn the game. I, I hadn't done too badly. I'd not set the world alight, but um, maybe it was something Graham Taylor was looking for the right lineup, something to to give the team a spark, um, which which we never found. Um, so he was chopping and changing a little bit because Shearer got dropped for the third game. Um, the other thing I remember about that France game was Basil Bolly headbutting Stuart Pearce off the ball <laughs> and, and Pearce not making much of it at all. Something even went down. He had a little Fred Street came on and, you know, dabbed his nose with the cold sponge. But uh, that was about it. Uh, and then Percy uh, crashed one against the crossbar. But, uh, yeah, um, not much really to remember from that game at all. It was another nil-nil uh, fest, really. Yeah. I don't think he's had much um, luck with injuries either because um, Keith Carroll started at right back and he's not an actual right back, um, to be fair. Keith, he was a decent centre-back. But David Batty played right back, um, I think, the final game. And I think that some, summed up some of the problems that you guys had. As you mentioned, Mark Wright was injured as well, someone that you almost um, forget about. And he had a great um, Italian night and John Barnes was missing. So um, did that hamper you as much as anything or is it just a case of that at the end of the day, you just weren't good enough. No, it was a strange one because, yeah, we, we flew to Sweden without a uh, recognised right-back. Uh, Lee Dixon had twisted his ankle doing a run through the woods by his house. And I think Gary Stevens, uh, the Everton player, had dropped out. So, yeah, we, d- we didn't have a right-back. Um, Tony DeVigo, I think, was asked at one point whether we could play there. That didn't happen. Keith Curl, yeah filled in so yeah it was far from ideal 
far from ideal. Um, we didn't really have that solid, settled back four. But having said that, we didn't concede too many goals, really. Obviously, we conceded a couple against Sweden, but uh, it was knocking him in at the other end was our problem. Yeah, um, pro- yeah, problem at one end. Um, well, she didn't have a problem the f- um, at, at the in defence um, for the first two games, two clean sheets. There was no goals in the, um, the other two. But then you score after just three minutes against the uh, against Sweden. David Platt with a volley and into the ground and at the corner. It's looking good at half time. You're one up. But then Sweden get back level with Jan Eriksson, um, Jan Eriksson header, and then the infamous moment, which. Um, a lot of people remember this from an England perspective. Um, on you coming on for Gary Lineker, you coming on is not a bad move, but taking off Gary Lineker when you're needing a goal to win the game, and let's be honest, England were needing to win that game. It was a controversial move that Graham Taylor, God rest his soul, has never been allowed to um, forget until he's dying there. No, it was a strange one, it has to be said, and whether Graham, you know, looked back on that with any regret, I don't know. I mean, I remember. Graham having a go at Gary throughout the match because he wasn't holding it up. Every every poor touch, he, he was going mad. And then in that second half, he's told me and Alan Shearer to get warmed up. So we're warming up together up that touchline. And um, he's called me back. He's called me back. And at that point, you're thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on with Gary here, you know, revive the old Leicester partnership and we need a goal. Uh, his number comes up. So you are a little bit surprised. Of course you are, but you haven't got time to think about it too much. Uh, you're going on for England at a vital time in the tournament. Your country desperately needs a goal, so you're just trying to go out there and doing your best. Uh, it was only afterwards, really, that um, you think about it and the press obviously jump on it. Um, but uh, at the time, yeah, uh, you, you shake shake Gary's hand and just get out there. Uh, I can understand him being bitterly disappointed with it. It was his last game for England, as it turned out. Um, not the way he would have wanted it to end. It was my last game as well. Not by choice, though. <laughs> I didn't get picked again. But uh, I didn't get much of a chance before um, Thomas Berlin got that goal. Yeah, and uh, you know, you mentioned, obviously, we've also talked about um, the stick that Graham got. How much stick did you get um, after, after that? Um, admittedly, it's not your fault. You weren't. You didn't ask to go on for Gary. Like you asked to go on, but <laughs> you weren't. You weren't saying put you on for Gary or anything. No, I don't think I. I don't remember getting too much stick. I think probably the the manager got more uh, than me. Um, some people might have said, "Well, how's Alan Smith better than Gary Lineker?" You know, in terms of getting a goal, and they would have had a point there. Um, but um, yeah, uh, it was just something as a, as a footballer. Um, you're, you're just concentrating on what's expected of you and trying to, you know, produce some some form uh, just when it matters. So, uh, as I say, it was just at the end. We all actually gave a, Gary a round of applause in the dressing room afterwards to congratulate him on his, uh, his fantastic England career. Uh, it was a pretty solemn dressing room apart from that. Uh, Graham Taylor said a few words, not, not too much, um, nothing much he could say. And we're flying home the next day. So, yeah, it really did end with a whimper, that tournament. Yeah. And um, do, do you think the, the stick um, that Taylor got was over the top? You know, things like, um, you know, putting his head on the turn up that kind of thing. It's, it got really personal, I think, at times from um, an outside looking in. Yeah, it did get personal, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I suppose he's he's not been the first person to receive it, but it's it's not nice at all. Uh during tournaments, the whole country's focused, isn't it, on uh on the on the team doing well and, and when it goes pear shaped like that, they wanna, you know, they wanna scapegoat the, the, the press do and Graham's the obvious man for it. Um so uh yeah, I think he was a manager that was always under a little bit of pressure. Uh, many people thought, oh, he's, you know, is he the right man for the job? Is his style of football suited to international, the international game? Um, but, um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was nice to see, really. Um, we all, you know, got off that plane at Luton Airport and couldn't wait to get away from football for a few weeks, go on holiday, you know, and forget about it. Yeah, at least you were um, you were able to do that. Um, you know, um, and the other, and it was just a tournament that just went on for England, not just on the pitch but off the pitch as well, because you had the unfortunate um, scenario with um, 
a, po- um, a portion of England fans, and let, let's get this right here, it's not the majority. It was a, it was a minority, but obviously the, that minority um, tarnished England's reputation you know, with the riots, etc. It was going on in Stockholm and Malmo. I mean, that must have been really disappointing. Did it disturb you in any way during the tournament? When, when you're in the team hotel, um, you are kind of insulated from it a little bit, but Graham Taylor used to have the the English papers brought into that hotel and, and they were on, on the table at breakfast every morning. So in hindsight, I don't think that's a great, great idea to have the English papers in there, especially if you're not doing well. <laughs> so we'd get a flavour of it. We could also get English TV in our, in our rooms as well, or at least downstairs in the, in the main um, TV meeting, so the, the team meeting room. Um, so we were aware of it. Uh, and you're just so disappointed about it because Sully in the name of the, the country worldwide, um, it's happened many times before, hasn't it, unfortunately. Uh, at the same time, you, you take yourself away from that. It's all about what we're doing on the pitch. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's what we were... Con- I wouldn't say it put us off our game in any way at all. Um we would just concentrate on doing well. But yeah, it, it, it's not not great to read when you pick up those papers. No, and, and look, the, the month before, England had been awarded Euro 96 and there was a fear that UEFA were going to immediately take it back off them. Unfortunately, it didn't happen to be the case because Euro 96 turned out to be a good tournament. But, you know, it, it just could not have happened at a worse time. And as we say, things, it was just not a great experience for you guys overall. And um, even when Thomas Brolin scores that, quite wonderful goal and I'm not just saying this because I sat against England I'm saying it because this is the, it was the best goal this time for what I could remember you know um, just when that happens at that moment you just know that's it we're done mm. yeah yeah no it had that feeling about it didn't it um, first of all con- to concede um, from that corner wasn't it which was not like us we wouldn't normally expect to concede from a set piece and uh I mean, as you say, John, it was it was a brilliantly worked goal that, and brilliantly finished, uh, just cutting a path through the middle of our defence. Um, but we weren't good enough on the day. Uh, we didn't create many chances uh, of note after David Platt's uh, early one. But when he Platt, he got that goal. Obviously, you're thinking, here we go, um, game on. But we lost our momentum. We didn't uh, take advantage of that um, early lead. Uh, which was a big disappointment. Sweden really did come back. And I think Graham Taylor said some words about them being more athletic, fitter, bigger, stronger. He'd mentioned it before the match. Uh, and he, he felt that that's what uh, won out in the end. I, I don't know I, whether that's true or not. But uh, we were uh, we were blown away to a certain extent in that second half and couldn't come back with much of a reply. It turned out, though, to be fair to you guys, that this wasn't just an ordinary Sweden side. This was a pretty good Sweden team that did very well at the next World Cup, finished third. Um, you know, we mentioned Brolin. You know, Kenneth Anderson was a good striker. Martin Darling. Um, your your teammates, um, past and present, um, Anders Limpar and Stefan Schwartz, very good players um, as well. And, uh, you know, and then a young Patrick Anderson defence and it was a very good um, Sweden team but not that that gives you any consolation because the expectation at the start was that France and England would qualify in one and two but they both ended up three and four because the two Scandinavian sides were the ones that got through yeah that's it yeah yeah I mean they were a good team Sweden I think after that performance against us the manager said that's as good as he can remember them playing for quite some years Um, so that that Tells a story. Um, Anders Limpar was a roommate of mine, actually, when he came to Arsenal. So he became a close friend and uh, a fine, fine player. I've never seen feet move so quickly as his. He had little size uh, six boots. Such a skillful player, though. He created a lot of goals for me in that 1991 campaign. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just shows you, doesn't it? You look at the table sometimes, uh, you see it sometimes in the Champions League, not often, so often these days, but you think you know who's going to qualify and it doesn't turn out that way and uh, that's what happened uh, in our group. Did Lampard give you a lot of stick when you got back to Arsenal? Yeah, and he was, uh, yeah, one or two little jokes, um, but he, he was a good lad. He was one of those, very popular. You couldn't uh, fail to like him. 
Um, so uh, I got his shirt after that. So uh, it, it was, it, you know, you didn't mind too. Once you've got over that initial disappointment, you just get on with it. And then what about your club manager? Because obviously George Graham's a Scotsman and Scotland technically finished above England in the tournament because we, um, we we won a game and um, in some respects England were home before us because we were still playing a game when you were all flying home to Luton. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a proud Scot, uh, the gaffer. Uh, so uh, if there was a bit of bragging to be done, he wouldn't uh, waste the opportunity. I can't, I can't remember what he said at the end of that one. Um, I suppose he's trying to pick us up in pre-season as much as anything. Uh, me and Paul Merson, um, Martin Keown was there at the time, wasn't he, I think, uh, with Arsenal. So um, these players, uh, yeah, he just wants to get them ready again for the for the league campaign. Um, George was never too bothered whether England did well or not, as long as these players came back fit. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and so when you look back um, 30 years on um, from your 92, it obviously turned out to be the only um, major tournament you played at with England or made a squad with England. You know, bittersweet, is it fair to say that um, that you, you were there representing your country, but it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to? Well, it didn't, but I've got 13 caps, and if you'd have offered me that when I was allowed to have a you know, snatched your hands off. Uh, I never established myself in that starting eleven. I had some periods where I played maybe three games on the trot. Uh, I always think with international football as a striker, it's important to get a couple of goals early and it gives you that belief and confidence that you can survive and do well at this level. That never really happened to me. So I was always kind of fighting against, fighting to try and uh, make a name for myself. Um, but... Uh, I was so close to going to Italia 90. Um, he convened the 26-man squad, Bobby Robson, and four of us from Arsenal came back from Singapore on an end-of-season trip. And when you call back, you're thinking you've got a great chance of <laughs> making it. Um, as it turned out, um, me, Tony Adams, David Rowcastle, uh, we all uh, were ejected. We had a few days training at Bisham Abbey before he named his 22-man squad. And uh, we didn't make it. And, of course, Italian 90 was a great World Cup. And I'm sat there watching it on the telly and I was gutted I didn't go. Even if I hadn't have kicked the ball, I would love to have been there. Steve Ball got the nod ahead of me. Um, and he was playing in the old second division, as it was there. Then we were in the first. So, um, yeah, it was quite hard to take that, uh, especially how that tournament turned out. Yeah, that would have been almost like a sliding doors moment for you, obviously. I mean, you got to your 92, as we say, but then after that, not not by your um, fault, you didn't get any more England caps after that. It's just a shame that your story is almost bittersweet, but at least, at least you can sit here and say that you were, you've played in a major tournament. Um, you're talking to a 40-year-old man who couldn't kick a ball, so I've got none bit envy for you. <laughs> no, well, listen, looking back now, the further away you get from it, you look at your caps and you think on that given day, I was the best centre forward that uh, my country could call upon. So that's a really proud realisation. Playing centre forward for your country is a big, big deal. So uh, I take great pride in that. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have got 50 or 60 caps, but it didn't didn't quite happen. Um, but nevertheless, I, I enjoyed every... Um, Every um, meet-up with the squad, whether I played or not, there were quite a few where I didn't didn't get a game, but I, I just loved being a part of it. Yes, there was pressure. You felt that. Uh, maybe that inhibited you sometimes. You didn't reach your club-level type form, but uh, yeah, to, to be involved with England was fantastic. Excellent. And um, we'll, we'll just end by talking briefly about the current squad. They also reached... Um, the final last time in, in the Euros did extremely well, um, and they've got the world. They're guaranteed um, in the World Cup. Obviously, um, I know um, as we record, the draw hasn't been made, made etc. Hopefully, Scotland join them. Um, what chances do you think England have of um, winning the World Cup? Because that's got to be the aim. Having been fourth at the last World Cup and reaching a Euros final, they've got to be looking at certainly minimum semi final. They've got a good enough squad. Yeah, they've certainly got a good enough squad and they are in that category now where you're looking at um, the final four. 
in the way that Germany have been, Italy, Brazil. Um, and that that's down to the quality that we've got. Um, you expect it now, which is, which is a great thing. We've reached a semi, we've reached a final. It's taking that final step. Why not in Qatar? It, it's at a point in the season where your players aren't going to be tired. They should be at peak fitness. Hopefully, they'll go to Southgate can pick a full squad, the one that he wants. Um, who knows? It's It would be um, a real shame. We talked about the golden generation, didn't we, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was, and, and nothing too much came of that. Um, so it would be a real shame if uh, if we couldn't pick up any silverware with this with this group of players. They're still very young, so that that bodes well. And let's just hope over whether it's not in November, whether it's over the next few years that they can finally clinch a bit of silverware on the international stage. And that would be most Scotsmen's nightmare. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you'd be pleased for something. I'm shocked. Shocked. <laughs> it's a sporting thing, Alan. Nothing more than that. Uh, but listen, no, then we'll, no, we'll, no. we'll hope that hope that we're there with you anyway. We'll just need to wait and see how things go. But listen, thank you very much for your time on um, looking back at Euro '92. Pleasure. Thank you, John. When you go. This Euro 92 throwback series is sponsored by Supernova Terraceware, an independent Scottish terrace and leisureware company. They sell a great range of products including t-shirts, hoodies, hats, scarves and more. Also, they have a great range of new products coming soon including jackets. As a special for this series, they're offering listeners 10% off using the code EURO92 in capitals. So please visit supernovaterraceware.com to take advantage of this great offer. We'd like to thank Supernova Terraceware for their continued support of Scottish Football Forum's podcast. In this part of our Euro 92 throwback, we review the performances of tournament debutant Scotland. And joining me is one of our leading football writers, Hugh MacDonald. Hugh, welcome along. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, John. Very well, and you're well too, I hope. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, obviously, the... Um, been enjoying this throwback series um, as part of the build up to the yeah. launch of my book. I'll get that out right now for the listeners. So, um, <laughs> but no, it's um, it's all good at mine. So, um, yeah, as we've discussed before, because you've obviously um, spoken to me very kindly for the book, um, Scotland went into the Euro 92 qualifying campaign on the back of a pretty disappointing World Cup, um, especially the Costa Rica defeat. And there was a bit of apathy when they came back. You know, what was your recollections then from that, that time? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there was a, a, a bit of disillusion. Isn't it wonderful to think uh, uh, that disillusion amounts to coming back from a World Cup finals? But anyway, <laughs> that's the way it was in those days. Yeah, there was a bit of disillusion about the thing. There was a bit of, um, we should have perhaps done better. Like everything, I think, when you look back in history, um, I think uh, we overestimate um, what our prowess was and and tend to um, over dramatize the defeats that we have. You know, the, you know, you know the defeats. It's like you can go back anyway. You go back to '78. The defeat by Peru looks like a national disgrace instead of, you know, a very reasonable <laughs> outcome. Uh, uh, Costa Rica was looked upon as a, another national disgrace. But when you look back on it again, it doesn't. You know, should it surprise us? Not really. But yeah, there was a feeling of remember there was a this was a period of um, uh, you know when we had I would say world class players certainly those on the fringes of world class uh, and uh, a very deep squad with a lot playing a lot of players playing in the, in the top league in England so um, yeah there was as a feeling we could have done better. Yeah, definitely, and there was also pressure in Roxburgh at that point, and um, but. Like a lot of other his predecessors, he got another campaign. It wasn't too uncommon for a national managers to get 
two Euros and two World Cup mm. campaigns. Um, but there seemed to be a wee bit more pressure on this one to deliver the Euros, unlike previous managers where it was seen as a build-up to the next World Cup. But no. um, they certainly got off to a good start um, with two home victories over uh, Romania and Switzerland, the two mm. or two of yeah. the main rivals for um, that solitary qualifying spot. Yeah, I mean... Um it was one of those tough groups where, you know, you know, the, apart from San Marino, the group, as they say in cricket in terms, batted well down, you know, and, it, you know, there was two two really important victories, I think, you know, um, taking Romania out of, um, not completely the equation, but taking Romania out at Hamden uh, uh, was, a, was a good result, a narrow result, as I remember as well, um, uh, Two one, so that yeah, that that was important. That was important. I think it is important, you know, to get that good start, to get on the you know on the front foot. Switzerland comes along again, and, and we beat Switzerland two one as well. Narrow victories, but important victories. Yeah, they, they definitely were, and. Um... Then, then came a couple of um, difficult games with Bulgaria. Um, a lot of a lot of us Scots tend to focus only on the Costadino goal that possibly shouldn't have been yes. handed. Denied us um, maximum points in that uh-huh. game. But when I look back at the Bulgaria away game, they had a perfectly good goal disallowed in that match. So maybe um, yeah. evened out a bit, and maybe two draws on the balance were fair because they dominated the home game. We probably dominated the our home game. Yeah, and I think coming out of that that double header all square was. Was probably probably what was deserved. I mean, that Bulgaria team, an excellent team, you know. Um, um, you know, we're really good individuals in the team. Uh, and I, 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 you know, I for one felt then I always remember then feeling that okay, the the, the last minute goal happened terribly disappointing. But on reflection, coming out all square and uh, and the tie, as it were, uh, wasn't the worst result. Uh, it, it it proved to be. Decent points as um, it ends up yeah. in the in the shake of things, but there was no more um, decent point than what was earned in Switzerland. Um, uh-huh. Hostile atmosphere, two 0 down at half time. Um, Switzerland think that they've got the job done because a victory would have essentially sealed it for them that night. And Andy mm-hmm. Roxburgh used their reaction as his half time team talk, and it was a different Scotland that came out second half and um, a, a terrific fight back to get a draw out of that, and it proved crucial. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was. That was an odd game, as I, as I recall, because I think you've summed it up pretty accurately there. You know that the first half was, you know, one-way traffic. I always remember, you know, again, you remember how good. I mean, Switzerland have come back again. Uh, of uh, to be a really top-class nation. We, we know at the moment of they edged out um, Italy in the group, and that had horrible consequences for the Italians. But Italy, uh, sorry, it wasn't a good team then. And, and Stefan Chapuzat, who, who scored in that game, was a, an excellent player. And we needed everything we had to get back into that game. I think there was another, McCoy had a very good qualifying campaign, I felt, you know, not just in goals, but in playing. And then Gordon Jury and Ali McCoy uh, gave us, a you know, a really important draw. I mean, it actually clawed us back into the clawed us back into a, a, a qualification, you know, I wouldn't say plate, you know, certainty, but a place where, you know, that we could look at and say, well, that was the result. If you had to put down one result or one forty-five minutes that got us there, I think the second half in Bern would be the, the 45 minutes for me. Yeah, I think most Scotland fans would, um, would share that sentiment. Um, although, um, when it was officially confirmed, Scotland weren't even playing. Andy Roxburgh was probably the only man that, um, in Sofia that was cheering because Bulgaria and Romania drew. You wouldn't get that nowadays, a scenario where um, you know what, where the whole group depended on one game elsewhere. Yeah, I know. It's, it, 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 it's, it, I mean... You just have to look at the final table. You see how tight it was, you know, uh, uh, to go through, and and rightly tight because what, the way we talked about this before was, you know, th- this was um, a really tight qualification process. There was eight teams uh, and, uh, for the Euros, you know, uh, and it's a very, very, <laughs> it's a very, very tight qualification process for that. Two groups of four for the finals. I mean, we're we're going up to twenty four uh, at the last count, uh, and uh, so yeah, tight group. 
I thought it was a very impressive campaign. Okay, a couple of a couple of bloopers along the way, um, losing in Romania, uh, possibly losing the last goal against Bulgaria, uh, but generally, you know, solid performances all the way through. Yeah, against three sides who went on to do extremely well in the, um, the next World Cup. Um, exactly. So I think it just shows. And there was genuine world-class talent in the likes of Hadji mm. and Stoichkov and, mm. you know, Chapoy's at as well, who was a Champions mm. League winner with Dortmund. You know, so um, yeah. they certainly did well. So having... Yeah, we've discussed before about the media reaction. Um, I mean, it was obviously a big mm. thing that Scotland qualified for Euros for the first thing, but probably didn't get the coverage that you would imagine now, you know, it, wouldn't, it didn't get like a double phrase spread back and front page stuff like um, the Serbia result got, obviously. Yeah, but the, everything's in context, of course, and, and the context of Serbia is a generation of Scotland fans who've not seen Scotland, uh, you know, um, you know, at finals. So um, the Serbian result, you know, has to be put in that context that this was the end of a drought what you remember about um, okay, we, we didn't have a, a, a glorious history in the Euros, uh, but you know we'd, we'd, we'd been you know been qualifying regularly for more cups in 1974, uh, and uh, yeah, I think there would probably be a, 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 an expectation that it was our due to qualify for the uh, for the Euros. But again, I point out there's only eight teams there, you know, and the more you look back on it. The more, and you look at the eight teams as well, and the quality of the eight teams, um, uh, the more it stands out as an extraordinary achievement. Absolutely. And you talk about the quality teams. Well, we couldn't have asked for a harder quality in draw. Mm. Um, the world mm. champions in um, Holland, the mm. new looking world camp- champions in Germany, who obviously unified from West and East before. Mm. And then you've got um, the small matter of the CIS, um, who were Soviet mm. Union before the, the breakup, and they were allowed to yeah. participate as CIS in that tournament, mm. who had been the Euro runners up four years earlier. I mean, when you look at that mm. draw, and you look at, <laughs> <laughs> you just think, oh, well. How, let's just do what we can. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, once you're in there, it's like it's like one of those we know as well. It was like it was almost like I suppose in a way the the birth of the Tartan Army is, is certainly in terms of you know in terms of in terms of bonhomie and you know and, and going going for laughs and giggles rather than you know going to win it or you know or going to uh, uh, I think it was. I think I think Sweden was a sort of seismic change in that, where Scottish fans became almost the darlings of tournaments or wanted to become the darlings of tournaments. I think part of that was going to um, going to the tournament really, you know, with little expectation of getting out of that group. I mean, I suppose the real fanatics amongst the support would, you know, would say, "Oh, there's a way out of this," but. Certainly amongst the press, I would imagine, you know, I mean, I remember in my day, it was more or less, let's, let's see, you know, let's see what this group can bring. Let's see what, what's the word for, let's see what the the best we can do in this. And do you know what? We actually did pretty damn well. I mean, uh, again, it was, what was the expression I would use? Um at the time, there was ultimate disappointment, and so there should be if you go out a tournament, you know, before getting the knockout stage. I think, you know, yeah, that there should be that. I, I agree with that. But again, in hindsight, if you look at the the uh, at the teams, if you look at who we played and how we played, I think it was more than commendable. You know, I really think it was more than commendable. Um, I think. I don't think there was what's the word for it? I don't think there was one match which you could have said, you know, in the great Scottish tradition that we, you know, we snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. I don't think there was that. I don't think there was one match where we, we let ourselves down in any way. You know, the two games we lost were beaten by really good teams, and we were beaten narrowly by really good teams. So um it was, you know, for that reason, you know, when you look back at, say, 78, where, you know, where Scotland come back in ignominy, again, I think, over-dramatised. 
This wasn't like that, John. This was a this was a tournament where we actually did very well. Yeah, there, there wasn't a glorious failure novel to this because we were out after two games at the end of the day without scoring a goal. But you yeah. put it in context that we didn't have a genuine world-class player. You maybe had people in the periphery. Like Sir Richard Goff was a top-class player um, yeah. in his day. Um, Andy Gorham in his day was a top-class goalkeeper. Mm. You wouldn't have said at that time that they were genuine world-class coming up against world-class mm. like Koeman and Bergkamp and Klinsman and Van Basten and yeah. all these kind of players. I think so, and the, you know it's interesting to say about world class. I, I would have, I would have said, you know, Gorham ended up being world class, yeah. especially I would say in ninety two, ninety three. You know, he had that terrific season uh, uh, with um, with Rangers in the, the Champions League in particular. Uh, but I, I agree with you; he wasn't quite there at the time. So we had very good players, though. I mean, I think you know, I don't think we were short and very good players. With a good team strategy, I feel good. You know, considering what happened late, we know that golf fell out with uh, Roxburgh, you know, calamitously later. But at the time, I think we were filled with you know really top-notch players. Um, but I agree with you, not of the you know not the the, the very highest level, no. Yeah, I'm. I'm doing. The, it's almost feeling like I'm doing a disservice because there's. A, it's, it was a talented squad. As I say it was full of winners because you had a Rangers team that season won the double. Um, you had um, Morris Malpass had played in the UEFA Cup final with Dundee United. Um, only what five years earlier, Stuart McKimmy had yeah. been a title winner um, with Aberdeen before. Um, mm. and then you had like Sir Brian McClare and uh, um. I think who you know Gordon Strachan missed out because of um, injury, uh, but um, Gordon, but Gary McAllister was a title winner that season with oh, Leeds United. And, and, yeah, and McStay was you know mm-hmm. was a much under it still is for some reason much underrated player. Still, I know not among screening waves. There's always a feeling about Paul's career that you know if he'd have went elsewhere, he would have prospered, and I think he would have obviously because he was a top class player. But he did, I mean, he did so well at Celtic as well. I mean, he, he was, you know, literally mainstay of that team from a very young age. Um, uh, so, yeah, there was, I mean, when we're saying uh, what we're talking about players, we're talking about the very elite player, you know. When, you know, we're talking, we are talking about the Klinsmans, etc. Uh, but there, there was, Scotland team was full of technically good players, Um a, a, a technically good side, um, no position, you know, sometimes an international uh, selection, particularly for teams of 5 million population, you can get um, situations where you're left really short in certain positions. I don't think there was a case for that. I mean, I think we had pretty good options all the way through the team. So, yeah, a strong team. And, and I think as well, one of the stories of the tournament um we probably had, we had a manager or a coach, a head coach that was ahead of his time, and it, 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 you know the, the golf um, uh, debate and, and argument comes later. But everything that um, Roxburgh was doing then, where people might be raising the odd eyebrow or might be slightly disdainful of, is really sort of basic practice now. I can I can safely say that having spoken to Richard for the um, the book, and although there was um, that fallout, he still speaks very highly of Andy Roxburgh, mm. despite mm. some things as well. And I think it shows as well how much I respect Andy had for Richard as a player that he named him as his captain, despite some high profile fallouts. So I think the Switzerland game was actually one of them as well. It was, I it was. Um, but he still named him uh, his captain for the tournament. Yep, uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, the Switzerland game had brought up such a, a, a huge um, amount of controversy on the back, and just because of the dramatic nature of the game as well and, and the way the goals were scored. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think Roxburgh was very, very good. Was, I don't think... I know Roxburgh's very clever. I mean, Andy Roxburgh probably intellectually um, one of the most intelligent coaches in European football, certainly at that time. Uh, he was also um, a former head teacher, uh, as well as being a footballer player. So he knew he knew 
how to manage situations. And I think he very cleverly, or, you know, he he very adroitly sort of um, managed the golf situation because he knew how important golf was to the team and to his hopes. And quite correctly, you know, he, he, he came up with strategy, keep everybody on board. Uh, but, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the, well, we both know that, what are we now? Goodness gracious, <laughs> you know, uh, decades on or 30 years on from it. And he's still working as a as a technical director, still advising um, people on how uh, football academies and clubs and training and infrastructure and protocols should all be set up. Um, so, you know, he's a substantial figure in Scottish football under Oxford. Yeah, doesn't always get the credit he deserves, but certainly in mm. this tournament he gets um, this without doubt his finest hour. Um, mm. Before I even talk about the games, one thing that he certainly got right was um, the, the squad harmony. I mean, a lot of them played together. Mm. I mean, there was 15 Scottish-based players and five English-based, so that tells mm. you a lot about the close-knitness. But mm. he had five weeks with the players before um, the tournament and he took them to America. Um, but even... Um, you know, and there was lots from doing in America, but even back home, it took me to Dunkeld and made sure there was plenty to do like, um, golf yeah. and uh, clay pitching shooting and, uh, you know, <laughs> even fishing and things like that. And you that think is. about the modern day where everyone's on their phones, he made, you know, he, you know, had that balance between, you know, training hard, but also giving them that relaxation time as well. Well, I think you really had to, you had to, you had to really be like that. I mean, because one of the, you know, it's, there's a different culture now, John. I, I was talking to Sean Maloney about the Belgian culture when he was working uh, with, uh, with, with Belgium uh, at tournaments. And he was he was making the point that there was no real management of, of players' downtime. There had to be nothing. I mean, players would automatically, these, the elite players that still... Uh, Lukaku, you know, Hazard, these guys would all go. And if there was any time, like a flight delay or something, they would sit and they'd be looking at their clips. They'd be looking at their personal clips, looking at training. Downtime would be rest and recovery. They would be really um, attuned to their personal rest and recovery, what was good for them, you know, whether hydration or sleep or something else. 30 years ago, and I bet it wasn't like that. I mean, a lot of rest and recuperation had to do with, you know, go out for a few pints and, you know, the guy, I mean, Scotland, you hear it all the time, you know, um, you know about, you know, Scotland players, because it was a culture, seeing on the, the coach, you know, after a game or three days before, it was all right for a couple of pints to, you know, come out and, you know, have a couple of pints in now and, 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 and the manager saying, um, uh, well, yeah, but take it easy, only have a couple of drinks, etc., etc. So that was, whether in 1990, things like that were changing slightly, you know, the, 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 the drink culture had not disappeared completely. Well, I think there was a feeling in, in, in by management that it should disappear completely, but they were dealing with reality, you know, they were dealing with what, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you'd asked Andy Rokes from 1990, you know, what would he really want from his 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 team in terms of um, rest and recuperation? He would he was wise enough to know, well, no, I don't want to be go out, I want to sit, I want to be massaged. But he had to he had to manage the 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 competing cultures of the time and the ex- expectations of the players. And I think he did really, really well. I mean, I, I, I think um, he managed that um, that sort of dichotomy really well. He managed uh, the expectations. It managed to make it try and make it fun for the players while the expectation lay upon them because there's no gimmies. I mean, they're going to this game and we know who they're playing. You know, they're playing the Netherlands, they're playing Germany, uh, and, and they're playing basically Greater Russia. So there's no gimmies, there's, you know, that, I mean, you just have to look at, you know, again, we only touched on this earlier, but I mean, if we touch on the, the, the German squad, I, I just had a kick at it there, and it's, 
I mean, you're talking about Reuter, Bremer, Kohler, Buchwald, Moller, Hassler, Wohler, Dahl, Riedler, Kotka, Tom. I mean, just going on and on. I mean, I could go on and on. There are others. <laughs> Netherlands, you're talking about Kuhn, Danny Blinn, Wouters, Bergkamp, Rijkaard, Van Basten, Hullet, John Van Schip. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, this, this is this is you know De Boer's. It, it, the, the, this is really the very highest end. Uh, and Andy would know. Andy would have, would <laughs> he would know the inside leg measurement. Never mind how good. Our players with us, the, 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 the size of the challenge was in front of them. And it was about just about getting the players not only prepared, but getting them on side and getting them all working together as a team. Yeah, definitely. And they certainly worked hard in that um, game against Netherlands. I mean, I would mm. say um, we weren't unlucky not to win the game, I think, um, but I think possibly unlucky not to get a draw. I mean, we put a lot of effort in yeah. the game. Um, Dave McPherson has our one really big chance in the first half. You uh, don't want that fall to his left foot. No yeah. disrespect, he's a good tournament. Yeah. But one moment of quality from the Dutch featuring three Milan players and then an emerging Dennis Bergkamp and you know, they take the two points. That's what happens, isn't it? That's what happens. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what good players do. That's what, I mean, in tight games. I mean, the amount of the amount of difference uh, in these games, these games are, I mean, there's so many cliches that go about, but a lot of the cliches are cliches because they're, they're correct to speak to the truth. And that, that quality, that's what not only wins you matches, but can win you tournaments as well. And I mean, that Dutch team, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you pick the best Dutch team of all time, and uh, goodness gracious, you would have, um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of players to pick from going back to you know the, the explosion in the early seventies uh, with Feyenoord and Ajax. Uh, I'm, I, I, you know, you're talking about five or six of that Dutch team, you know, being in a greatest Dutch team of all time. And I'm talking about before and after. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can pick a greatest Dutch team of all time, for example, and leave out, you know, Rijkaard. You know, uh, Van Basten, Bergkamp. Uh, I mean, so it, it's it's this is a this is a top class team. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And arguably um, should have gone on to win it, but they obviously blew it against Denmark mm. in the semi final. But um, Germany obviously was next up. Um, now this is where we were a good but unlucky because we seventeen shots to their fifteen. I think we had nine shots in mm. target to their three. Um, we had some great chance, especially the first 20 minutes, but one moment of quality, um, which leads to Riedler's goal, and then mm-hmm. one really um, bit of bad luck um, with the um, Effenberg cross, which deflects off Malpass and loops over Gorman into the yeah. net and not over the bar. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just can't help those things, but the first goal was just a bit of quality, mm-hmm. to be fair. Absolutely, and Riedler, of course, is, you know, Riedler goes on to be a, a Champions League final goal scorer, you know, and we know how it is. His career pans out and it pans out in scoring big goals and, and, and big matches. And that was a, it was a very German goal, dynamic, technically astute, um, uh, emphatic finish. Um, yeah, I, 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 we, we can we can sob a little at the, the deflection, yeah, but um, but I'm afraid uh, the first goal was uh, first goal was just about class and. and Again, we go back to that point. I mean, I'm just looking. I mean, if you look at the German squad again, while we were talking about you know the great German teams and the great, you know, Germany's got a much more storied history than than, than, than the Netherlands, and that you know Germany won the, the World Cup in 1954. And, uh, but there's enough, there's enough of that German squad to, to to be in a. I mean, you know. I think Bremer would Bremer Kohler, um, uh, arguably Elkner as well in goal. He was a super team. Yeah, and Elkner, I mean, they would be contenders for a you know for a, a, a best ever uh, uh, you know uh, uh, German team. They would certainly be the, the, the and the others round about them. Were, but I mean, Effenberg and Klinsmann and Samer, goodness gracious, just go on. So. Um, yeah, powerful team, um, athletic, 
technically astute winners as well. Players not only who were winners, but would go on uh, to do great things in their career as well. Uh, so again, John, not much, not much getting the violins or out over that one either when you think about it. No, it certainly wasn't a disgrace losing that game, especially after putting in the effort. So we're out after two games, but we've got one game left to try and um, salvage a wee bit of pride. Um, fans at a campsite are saying all we're saying is give us a goal. Mm. CIS are rocking up to um, North Shopping thinking that after two draws against the best two teams of the group, all they need to do is beat a Scotland side with nothing to play for. We're through. We hear the stories from the likes of McCall, etc., saying that Michaela Chenko had the champagne ready in the bus. Mm. And... Um, the luck that we didn't get in the two games combined previously, we got in the first 16 minutes with the McStay goal that hits Karine's head, the deflection from a clear shot with his first goal at last after 25 appearances, and then um, again a McAllister penalty to round things off. Nice way to end it. Yeah, yeah and particularly during the game as well, CIS had some spectacular opportunities as well. You know, they missed a lot of very good chances. I mean, this was... Uh, you know, it looks, all these things, looks on paper, a very comfortable victory. Um, uh, and, and again, it looks on paper, a very comfortable victory in a, a game that means nothing, but it meant everything to the CIS. You know, OK, Scots are playing for pride, but it meant everything to them. Some terrific chances went a begging, John. I mean, I watched it the other week there before we talked the first time round, just to refresh my memories of it. And there was, I mean... Some really bad misses by the CIS nine game, and yeah, you're right. Um, whatever Scotland hit stuck, and as you say, maybe we were due a bit of that. And it, I think, I think it would have been harsh if we'd have come back from Sweden, you know, goalless, potless, pointless. You know, I think, um, I think we deserve something from it. Uh, and as you see, whether we might have been able to eke a point uh, from Germany, it seems strange to say that having won so comfortably in CI, probably two points, you know, a point in each game would have been fairer than the and than the, the, the two points against CIS, although we although we took it. Yeah, definitely. You just got to take what you get when you don't get the things that you probably deserve first time round. Um and obviously the, the result meant that although we were out Technically, um, we were fifth in the tournament, so in some roundabout way, Scotland were the fifth best team in Europe. You know, it's mm-hmm. something that probably, uh, as we look back now, as I say, um, books coming out, etc., um, probably look back now and think it wasn't something that we appreciated as much as the time. But you look back no, now and you think Scotland's the fifth best team in Europe, really? <laughs> absolutely. I mean, even if they, they'd had a disastrous campaign and ended up, you know, thrashing the game, ended up eighth best in Europe. My goodness, would they take that? So fifth best in Europe, you know, the best of the non-qualifiers. And again, looking at our squad, not a Scotland squad where a man of my age would go and say, if you're talking about, you know, say the, 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 the 10 best Scottish players of all time, how many of that squad would get in the best 10? I, I don't think, probably none of them. I mean, if you're talking about the best 10 of all time, you, you know, you're talking about, Douglish, Souness, um, Mackay, Johnston, Baxter, <laughs> Law. Uh, so that's us up to six. Uh, Law, uh, um, Huey Gallagher, probably uh, in there as well, going back to real old times. Uh, so top seven, you know, throw. So you're talking about the best players in that team, as we talked about earlier, being Richard Goff, who might be. Who would not be far away from that elite top ten, but he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be in it. Paul McStay again the same. Ali McCoy again the same. Would be you know wouldn't be in that elite top ten. What I'm talking about is you know going to and the other players are talking. Seventy four, for example, we go to our, our first World Cup and we've got Johnston. Okay, a, a, a depleted law, but with Johnston Law and McGrain and Bremner, who I would say were all world-class players. I think you could throw others in, but therefore, 78, you're talking about Souness, Dalglish, um, being world-class players, I think, without a doubt. Um, uh, so, 
Even 82, you know, the leash and Sooners are still there again. Hansen's added to that. I'm believing the point, but what I'm trying to make out is that we had far better, you know, stellar players than what appeared in the 92 squad. But the 92 squad, you know, maybe, well, not maybe, I wonder if that's, that probably was the, the, uh, was the best performance overall. And certainly the best, certainly that performance that outpunched what um, uh, what the uh, what we had in the armory, shall we say? Yeah, definitely, I think it's um, a campaign that, although we didn't reach the semi-finals, it was um, a campaign that we can look back on a lot of fondness. There wasn't any controversy with the players. There was certainly none from the fans, mm. and um, you had a team that performed admirably on and off the pitch so um, just uh, to round this off because we've actually went over the half hour um, allocated mm-hmm. time um, as usual um, how would you sum up Euro 92 from a Scotland perspective I, obviously from a Scotland perspective I would sum up as one of the great underrated Scottish one, and I'm really looking forward to reading all your book I've read a chunk of it as you know but I think it's such a great story and that's underrated almost neglected almost Disdainful uh, tournament, which not only produced probably a best result in international competition, but also was the hallmark of a, what I think will become, uh, as, as years go past, a, a really interesting and innovative and enterprising and modern head coach. Excellent. Well, listen, thanks very much for coming on again, Hugh, and thanks for your support in the book. And I look forward to seeing you on um, lunch day, the 30th of May. I look forward to that as well, John.